and welcome to Call It Like I See It, presented by Disruption Now. I'm James Keyes, and I want to welcome you to our first book club program. Today, we'll be discussing what we saw in the new golden age, the coming revolution against political corruption and economic chaos by Ravi Batra. Joining me today is the man himself, Tunde Ogunlana. What's going on, man? What's going on, brother? How are you, man? Doing great, man. Good to do this today. Me too. Uh, but we've both been looking forward to this one for a while. So, uh, so yeah, now in this book, uh, Robbie Botcher analyzes the past and the present, um, and he, he pulls and identifies commonalities and patterns that he sees uh, that appear to keep coming up or to almost be predictive in, in a sense. One of the first things he does in setting the stage for that is divides humans in any society into the four general classes, uh, being warriors, intellectuals, acquisitors and laborers with the intellectuals just one caveat there being not just what we would consider um, intellectuals in this society being you know related to education and things like that um, but also uh, intellectuals relates to religious figures and so forth now do you see these four classes as legit Tunde? like you know what, what do you see there in you know this division you know across any society you know just a human thing um yes I, I to answer directly I see them as legit um, I'm sure that one can argue uh, various versions of those, but I think uh, we all know that, that human minds fall into certain patterns. So um, yeah. I think that it's fair to say that if you were going to just segment them into four, these type of uh, classes make sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was like this... To me, from a foundational standpoint, uh, I thought this was very insightful and, and very accurate in terms of the way he described it and implemented it. It was different to see, you know, obviously the intellectual piece being uh, anyone basically who's using their mind or the aspect of their spirit, so to speak, to exert influence and control. Because that's really what this comes down to is how do you yeah. exert influence or, or how do you make your mark, so to speak, you know, and warriors. I, I took it that way too. It's like, what is, what is the dominant personality trait of those, like, like I guess, how are they expressed within the society? And, and yeah. your point about intellectuals, I think you're right. Their definition is a broader definition than I'd say what our modern culture defines as intellectual. We just think of that as kind of like a bookworm, Ivy League, yeah. you know, whatever stereotype we can bring to mind when you say intellectual. Um, but what he's, like you're saying, what he's really saying is just those that use kind of the mind first to, to take control. So in his example, um, something like the Catholic Church at its height, let's say five, 600 years ago in Europe, mm -hmm. you know, the Pope would have been seen as an intellectual, uh, even though in today's definition, one might not say that directly, you know, well, yeah, there was a split, basically, you know, initially, if you recall, uh, religious figures also gave you what did you what you need in terms of how the world works. You know, it wasn't until the Enlightenment period and, and you know, the age of science, really, where how things work was separated from religion. You know, does it rain because you sacrificed a virgin or does it rain because you know, you uh, because there's precipitation in the clouds that are coming up and the pressure dropped and, and all those things. So, you know, historically, even it, it really fits. It's just how you interact with people in terms of exerting control and influence through your mind. I thought the warrior piece was interesting, which expands it beyond military, so to speak. But also it was anyone who uses their body, who, who exerts, who has to, in terms of that, exert great levels of discipline um, and so forth. Um, the acquisitors, this part really um, was very interesting to me, being people who go after wealth, you know, and the people who want 
wealth and, and to control things, whether that could be land, whether that could be currency, you know, whatever, um, and dividing that out from the intellectuals who, you know, as he mentions, may actually try to also accumulate wealth in some degree, but it's not their driving force, so to speak. Whereas, you know, when he's talking inquisitors, that's they want it. They want to keep getting it. There's no greater purpose in a lot of times other than just acquiring it. Yeah, no, and that's an interesting one you land on with inquisitors because I, I found that to be intriguing, kind of that definition, because I think laborers, um, intellectuals, to the lesser extent that we just said, and definitely warriors. So let's say laborers and warriors definitely are titles that that really speak to what what we all would define them as, right? A warrior is someone that's going to hit you over the head with a club, <laughs> with a sniper rifle, you know, just just a soldier type, mm-hmm. or the or the or the warlord type, if that's the leader. And then the laborer is a laborer. I mean, I don't think there's there's too many other ways to define that. And and ancient society might have been one of the builders of the pyramids. You know, the apprentice mason. You yeah. know, back or the, or somebody working in the farm. You know, where and, and, or you know, yeah, farm. Or today might have been the guy in the factory. But but the labor, yeah. the, the, their role in society is is execution of labor. Um, but the inquisitor, because um, I know we just talked about intellectuals, but the inquisitor was an interesting one because I thought of it in several ways. You know. Our country is almost like a nation, uh, uh, an inquisitor nation. Mm-hmm. This is our culture as Americans. And I know that every uh, country or nation in the world has a history of, of all of these four um, dominant classes. But I thought it interesting just thinking of our country history, especially our country so young. So you figure late 1700s, let's call it by 1800, were really a functioning country. Um, you had a landowner society at that point in the expansion of our, of our territory. Mm-hmm. But then during the 1800s, for several reasons, including feeding um, a boom in Europe, cotton uh, became the number one commodity. So then the plantation owner became mm-hmm. the big acquisitor between, let's say, 1800 and 1860. Then after that, after the Civil War and all that, by the 1880s, it was the John D. Rockefellers and the DuPonts and the Vanderbilt. Yeah, the Robert Barons. Yeah. Industrialist mindset. And yeah. I would say since kind of 1980, it's the Steve Jobs, it's the, it's the Bill Gates, it's, it's the, the, the acquisitor class has basically become techies, you know, the guys that sat in their room doing binary code, <laughs> or the guys like at the head of Blackstone and KKR and Mitt Romney, you know, these guys that do private equity and investment banking, you know, they're kind of just pushing paper around. So that's the one that to me was fascinating because they change their stripes a lot in terms of the definition of maybe what they do in a given period. Mm -hmm. But it's that same class. So... Yeah, well, the, what they do, whatever is valuable, <laughs> whatever makes money yeah. is where they are. You know, like you, you won't find those. They're not in the railroads, you know, because that's not no, what, what's happening now. And, and the interesting thing, too, is I think from what in reading about these classes, here, here's the interesting thing I took away is that we're all born in a given period of time in history mm-hmm. um, in terms of us as individual people with our own makeup and mindset. Um, but depending which class is dominant at the time we're born is really going to determine a lot of um, just how we get through life. I don't want to say happiness or misery, but um, like well, it helps determine the winners and losers in some correct. ways. You know, like the, the characteristics that you're born with, whether those are valued at that moment. Correct. That's that's the way to put it, because I've thought about this for some time, actually, this example, which I'll give, which is I have some good friends of mine that are like really, you know, I would say proficient in technology and high up in the tech game. 
uh, you know, the guys that have done startups and all that. I will say that those guys have definitely uh, a personality makeup on average, you know, not everybody that is a lot different than someone like a warrior. Mm -hmm. and I, I've thought about it, that it's amazing in the last 40 years, just because of the information age, a guy that's a little bit um, quirky and maybe almost antisocial. Mm -hmm. Maybe that mindset is the one that back in the 80s and 90s was sitting there and could sit there for 14 hours straight looking at binary code. Mm -hmm. A guy like me that wants to be more talking to people, agrarian, some kind of more of a sales type of mentality. I'll go nuts if you put me in front of a computer for more than 10 minutes. Yeah. So I thought about that, that it's that mindset because of the way technology has gone, they've dominated, they've risen the top of the wealth classes in a sense. Well, but in that, that I would expand that actually, because even it's more just that those menial really getting into the details of things that has become more valuable. Because if you look at uh, finding the financial market uh, industry, yeah. um, you know, people doing the derivatives and, you know, things like that, like that's the same type of mindset where you're sitting there and drilling down for in, into all these things that someone who just wants to get out and shake some hands and, and, and use personal skills, you know, which that's something that yeah. will always benefit you. But, you know, that, that's not necessarily going to make you head of a software company or and, of a hedge fund. To that point, I mean, I thought about it before, too. I mean, I think that was the disconnect we heard of, you know, let's say last decade when the um, newer players in technology, let's call it like Mark Zuckerberg, um, were kind of coming up. I used to hear this stuff from just being in my industry of people that had met him like, oh, that kid, can you believe he showed up to this meeting in a sweatshirt and sandals? And um, there's a big... Uh, um, I don't know even what to call these companies that warehouse the big um, um, software um, and servers and all that. The big tech companies. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, um, just a, down here yeah. in Miami, uh, the company was called Terramark at the time. They got bought out by Verizon a few years ago. But I remember meeting a guy that was, I think, third from the top there. And this is back in like 2008, 2007, maybe. They had just spent $40 million on renovating their air conditioning system because he was explaining to me how hot it gets in these rooms. He said, yeah. um, I guess yeah. Facebook had just hired them to be one of their major server centers. And I guess in this region of the world, you know, the Southeastern United States. Yeah. And um, he was, cause he was in his fifties at the time, the guy that, that I knew and he was like beside himself. He's mm. like, yeah, I just met that kid Zuckerberg from Facebook. Everybody talks about him. I can't believe that he's, he's such an asshole. He just, he just show up and, he, and it's like, <laughs> and I thought back after reading this book, like, yeah, that was that was the takeover of the uh, of of the, or the change of the inquisitor class. The, the real tech geeks mm -hmm. took it over, and it was whoever it was before yeah. you know the traditional finance and banking guys. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah, I mean it, it's well that group you know will morph basically exactly. you know because yeah the thing that defined them wasn't necessarily what they did but what their aim was Correct. you know and their aim was to accumulate value and, you know, value, you know, 500 years ago is, is in land. Correct. And now it's, you know, to in land to some degree, but now it can be, it's an information as we know uh, now. Great hack. That is now the number one commodity versus 10 years ago was oil. Yeah. Well, now I'll tell you this, the, uh, where we, what I think we have to, to get to, you know, I think this is where um, you and I have some level of disagreement just from our, you know, brief discussions we've had. But um, with these classes, he also extensively discusses the law of social cycles which he credits as being identified by uh, P.R. Sarkar. Um, and this is something he says plays out throughout history in various societies. Various societies can be at various points, but it's basically the cycle of who's in control between those four classes with it going from 
warriors to intellectuals to inquisitors, and then a revolution, so to speak, led by or, or, or that's instigated by the laborers being treated bad in the time of the inquisitors. And then you go back to the warrior class because the warriors oftentimes will lead or be a main, main part of that, uh, that overthrow of the inquisitors by the laborers. Um, so what do you see with these cycles, man? Do you think these cycles are legit? Do you think, uh, or well, yeah, just, no, yeah, I, mean, I, I think, think they are. I think I'm um, definitely, uh, before we finish the show, I'd like to talk to you about maybe where we think we are, uh, in today's world okay. within these cycles. But, um, yeah, no, I do think they're legit. Um, and again, going back to, cause I've taken things just in my life, these personality, uh, test, disc training, all these kind of things that anyone listening has been in corporate America has probably sat through. And, you know, what you learn and, and all that and, and those out there that have read about just psychology in general, uh, we all learn that human beings fall into certain psychological patterns and there's only so many out there. There's not, yeah. you know, there's seven, eight billion people in the world. There's not seven or eight billion individual ways that we all think. Correct. All Correct. of us can be probably... And how we experience, we experience things collectively, you know, like it's, it's not like each of us have a yeah. super distinct life experience. Things that happen, yep. happen to more than one and of so us. So that's know? why I think that, you know, I'm sure someone could sit here and argue and tweak different versions of so these social cycles, but I do think the idea of just looking at these broader patterns makes sense. And in, and in refreshing myself for today's talk and looking at the book again, it reminded me that there, there's like a macro cycle, but within that period, there's always these, these, these micro cycles that happen too. So just because one might say, I mean, he, he, he alludes to a few cycles in the book mm -hmm. where I can even point out and think to myself, okay, well, that might've been the macro cycle or this group dominated during this period. But there's a ton of examples we can look at through history where there were other classes that kind of shot up and, and, and also made their cases known during this period and were influential. So yeah. I do think there's something to be said. And I think that's why, I mean, we've always heard this. I'm sure everyone listening is since the time we were little kids, right? History repeats itself. Or the other one I've heard is history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And yeah, that's one. Yeah, Rob and I likes. think that it's true because if you look at certain periods in history, it's like certain things. It's like when we had this financial crisis ten years ago, right? We're in 2019, so we're, we're right at the 10th year anniversary of, of kind of the bottom of that crash. A lot of the rhetoric that people were saying could happen after has kind of come to pass, right? Social unrest, geopolitical unrest. Because this is the same pattern that happened in the 1930s after the crash of 29 and what led to a depression, economic, global economic depression back then. So now we've got different factors. We've got different technology. We've got different, you know, uh, leading countries back then. You know, England was the most dominant country in the world. Now it's the United States. Back then, um, you know, the European nations were in a bit of a flux coming out of World War I. Right now, they're a little bit healthier, but you have a country like Russia that's in flux coming off of, you know, 20 years after the Cold War. So a lot of the patterns that led to, I guess, the Second World War and the world thereafter are patterns that we see repeating themselves again. Doesn't mean that we're going to have World War III. It just makes it easy to, to understand what's going on today when you look at it from the lens of those cycles historically. Well, yeah, but I think that's the problem. Um, I don't think that uh, the cycles as they've been laid out here are legit. Um, I think that the revolt, so to speak, 
the acquisitor beating up the laborer just to pulp. Laborers get the short end of the stick. As, from the cycles that are, are cited, the warriors have a time to control, the intellectuals have a time to control, the acquisitors have a time to control, and the, and the laborers are always at the bottom, you know, or never in control. They're, they play a part of the refresh, basically, to get back to the warriors. Now, I see... From that standpoint, I basically, if you would say that at any point the laborers could get fed up and cause a revolt, then I would be more inclined to buy into it. I think what this is, is a convenient way to try to make sense of things after they've happened and to to feel better about it. You know, we want to make sense of things that we see. When we see stars, we want to see constellations. When we see clouds, we want to see shapes that we recognize and so forth. So that's what I think this is. Now, the underlying analysis of human behavior is, is I think, on point. You know, everything that he's talking about from that standpoint. But I don't think that the cycle necessarily goes warrior, intellectual, inquisitor, and then back to the warrior. Because the intellectuals could beat down the laborers enough and the, the, the laborers could step in and say, no, 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 this isn't good. Or the warriors could step in at that point and say, no, 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 intellectuals, you guys are going crazy. Um, the inquisitors um, don't aren't necessarily the end. The, the intellectuals could take over after the inquisitors because of the way things unfold. History is so unpredictable, and I think a lot of times it's comforting to people to feel like there is a overall grand master plan, almost to take responsibility off of themselves to to act and to to influence the world. Like I, I'm a one that believes that what we do or what we omit or our actions or omissions are what define life more than anything, you know, like things happen to us, but wise men often say, it's not what happens to you to define your life. It's how you respond to it. And so that's, that's scary though, you know? And so it's easier to just feel like there's a cycle going and I can just sit back and be a part of this. And I don't have any responsibility to make sure things go. When I see something happen wrong, I don't have a responsibility to step up because the cycle will correct that. And I, I, you, you know, there's a, a quote um, attributed commonly to Edmund Burke, you know, there's a question of whether that was actually him, but the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Well, where is that in the cycle? Because I think that's true. You know, like the, the, the cycle isn't, according to the cycle logic, it's going to refresh anyway, no matter what. Now, again, yes, people have a tendency of any persuasion, so to speak, meaning of these classes, to overdo it, to push too far and push their fellow humans into pushing back against them. But it's not orderly. You know, it depends on who steps up. It depends on who acts. And that was my biggest problem with it is that it just wants, it kind of wants us to take our hand or it doesn't want us to. It kind of, I think, leads to a false sense of security that you can take your hands off of the wheel and things will, the, the course, the arc of history that's will write itself. Interesting. And that's, that's what I just hope we that Two guys reading the same book getting totally two different things out of it because I didn't, I didn't see it that way. I, cause I didn't, I don't take it as um, trying to abdicate kind of individual uh, either responsibility or ability to make change or anything like that. I just see it as a macro. That's why I said, from a macro level, there are certain patterns that develop through almost anything, right? Whether it's gravity or, you know, physics, nature, all that. So, but within those macro patterns, there's always different examples of, of, of things that can be contrary to that greater pattern. But if you go out to a high enough elevation, you can see anything you want is kind of what I'm saying. So what we, we can highlight where this, like, I, I don't, I'm not saying that this, 
way he is saying has happened has never happened. It's happened in that way before. And he it, it points out the areas where it's happened. But I'm saying it doesn't happen like that every time. And those are kind of just swept under the rug or not dealt with because they don't fit the narrative that's being pushed, which is fine. That's what people do when they have a narrative. But I'm saying it doesn't always go like this. And so it's misleading to say this is something that is, even on a macro level, is the way things go. You know, like, again, if this was just an analysis of how things go commonly or a way that things could go, I would be all for it. You know, I would be all in favor saying, yeah, I agree. Like, because those all of those things are the way things kind of happen um, in various scenarios, depending on the circumstances, depending on the stimuli of the people. You know, what happens You know, when there's war? What happens when there's when there's not war? What happens when there's you know great leadership? What happens when there's poor leadership in any particular class? Now, and, I'll, and so I'll give you an example of where I think. Um it does fit. I mean, we've talked about this in the past, right? That, that Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, for example, represent something very similar, even though um, as vessels, the two men are very different. And it's, it's both kind of the idea of populism, right? And that the little guy's gotten screwed type of thing. And that's what, what's gotten them both to, to their positions of respective power today. Um, and, and I know Sanders didn't win the presidency, but he obviously has become a very influential politician in his own right. And, but what we talked about was both men have been saying the same thing for 40 years, almost, um, you know, Trump was taking out ads in the eighties, uh, newspapers saying the Japanese were kicking our butt and we're going to take over. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, um, Bernie Sanders since, you know, 1980, I think the first highlights I've seen of him talking about the rich fat cats and screwing the little guy. So these, these two men have been saying the same thing for 40 years. But it, it was the cycle in my mind that society got to a point where their message could now be absorbed and I guess um, liked by a large amount of the population. They both ascended to where they've, they've, they've been the last three years. Okay, well then let me respond to that because that, and, and look at the passive voice that, or the passive language that's used. So society kind of just happened in society. No, there was a financial crisis. And people realize like, hey, this isn't working, even though it hasn't been working. You know, the system, as we know, it hasn't really been working for 40 years. Um, but yeah, people but I realize guess what I'm coming at is I'm not arguing the point that it was a financial crisis. I agree. I mean, that's what I said first, that this again, this pattern that we're seeing here or this the current uh, way we are in the world is another cycle like we saw what after the First World War and the Depression that, you know, in the time in the 30s. So I, I agree with you that that. The cycle can be caused by something abstract like well, the transition. Yeah, the transition. And and but what I'm what I guess I'm saying, what I'm getting out of this book is that this the the cycle is predictable, right? That because of that, the financial crisis ten years ago, and like to your point, the fact that these um, tensions between the haves and have-nots have been growing for decades prior to that, it was predictable to me that based on what I learned through reading books like this and, and, and history, that the reaction of the population would be, would be like this, meaning they would be angry. They wouldn't want to listen to the so-called intellectuals and just kind of let's go get them. Type well, but of no, but, that, and, but see, that's where, again, that's, that's what we're talking about though. Yes. The, the reaction is predictable. I agree on that part. The cycle is what I'm saying isn't that we're going to go from if we're in inquisitors now and the laborers are fed up that we're going to go to a warrior 
is what I'm saying. No, I, I'm not, we could go to another intellectual or we could go to a warrior. Or we could go to in terms of what's going to prevail in the future. An example of that would be what happened in response to the, the, the crash in 29 and the Great Depression. It didn't restart into a warrior type of culture, so to speak. Um, now, you can try to project that on there, but nothing about FDR said that. Um, and in fact, if Obama had more FDR in him in terms of really getting in and trying to solve the root of the problems of what they created, the financial crisis in the early 2000s, that cycle may have repeated itself. And our, our economic system could have refreshed itself based on the, 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 the non-stacking or the, 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 the making it fair again and not stacking the odds in the favor of capital as they've been you know, pushed up for the last 40 plus years. And so, yes, the reaction is predictable. You know, the, the people who are accumulating wealth are going to push it too far at a certain point. But then what's going to happen, I'm saying, is what's not predictable other than something. Something's going to happen. But where, how it's going to play out will depend on who's around and what they do. Um, something will happen. But we just don't know that is more so what I'm saying. And so now that's, you know, and again, like you said, people will make their own decisions. I mean, I can see how, because again, people like to see order where there may not be order. So I can see how you can come to that conclusion. I just think, again, I, I just don't see it as something that's there. Um, and so we kind of discussed on whether we think it's predictive. Um, what did you think? One thing he mentioned in the book, um, the final year syndrome. And uh, this is something he points out over the last hundred years or so. Now, this book was written in 2006, I believe. Um, yeah. Which one thing uh, of note that we should, you know, really point out is he predicted uh, the busting of the housing bubble um, in this that, book. That what I thought was fascinating, not only did he predict that, he predicted that it would lead to a massive recession, potentially depression, which we pretty much were on the edge yeah. of, um, which would then create social upheaval. And he said that he, I mean, this is what was kind of fascinating to me when I first read the book, because I think I read it in like 2010 after this okay. stuff had already yeah, happened. Yeah. So I was already like, wow, this guy is actually, <laughs> I think I was looking for other stuff. Like, this guy got me stock predictions? <laughs> he's pretty good. <laughs> well, yeah, he hit it on the ha but, housing bubble. I mean, he hit it. But, no, but also he predicted that a minority in 2001. Possibly, could, yeah, that, that could happen. When yeah. the United States president. In 2008, yeah, and that was in 06. And it, and it kind of, he was right on all those fronts that the, the economic situation led to um, a collapse, which did lead to social unrest. I wouldn't say the social unrest led to a minority, but I think we all remember 07, 08. I think the country was ready, done with kind of Bush and the whole thing that happened then and was ready to give somebody else a chance. And then to your point, right? Yeah, he predicted a minority might win, but we could say within that macro kind of cycle, the mini cycle was to me the screw up of John McCain picking Sarah Palin <laughs> because no, had he picked someone more competent and qualified, maybe Obama doesn't win. So I, I, you know, that's why I'm, I'm agreeing with you that I don't think these things are perfect. These, these, any of these ideas, um, these kind of economic or social science type of ideas. Cause it's not a, it's not, um, it's not a natural science like physics, for example. I mean, there is a little bit of, of, of wiggle room here cause this is kind of coming out of human thought. But I do see long-term these patterns. I mean, that's, that's kind of how I guess I'll, I'll say it. And, um, and yeah, so he's a very, it was very interesting in terms, of, in terms of his ability to foresee the next few years. And I think 
So I've said this too to people well, recently. But to be fair though, he about, said things that he think would happen in the next few years that had, that didn't happen too, you know, so that, that are still pending, so to speak, in terms of the collapse of the economic system and, and, and so forth. Um, yeah, I mean, that's an interesting one. I guess one thing that is unpredictable, um, which he couldn't predict and any of us couldn't predict, is the role that central banks can play in, in helping to um, either avoid a certain disaster or keep a certain, um, you know, keep, some keep a disaster at bay. I mean, and that's kind of what I'm saying. Right, like, yeah, is like, that it, it's but keep a system continuing, to even go, though I it's guess, not like, working. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, that's, and, that's what well, I, yeah. his actually his ability to see clearly as far as the, the, the fallacies in the economic system actually is some of the most enlightening things of the book. Um, you yeah, know, like well, in making it plain and clear, I did want to hit on this final year syndrome, but I did want to, to discuss that, you know, like particularly with you, someone who's so well versed in the economic system. Um, but the final year syndrome just being that in the nine year of every decade, stuff seems to happen, whether it be the Great Depression in 29, World War II, 39, uh, Chinese Revolution, 49, and so forth. And so he was tracking that. He tracked it all the way through um, 99 and then obviously didn't do anything in, in 2009, but that was kind of his thought. Um, but that to me again was kind of like, you know, it, it, the, the years and the decades are kind of arbitrary, you know? And so that it was 1929 or it just depends on when you start counting AD from. And so that to me is just kind of putting a pattern onto something that after you know the result. Um, you know, like you're putting a pattern onto something and then saying, see, you know, here it is. So the final year syndrome. Well, here's the question though, because you, 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 you know, look, I, you're not wrong for saying that that happens, right? That, that people will look back at something and then assign their thought process to that. Um, but I would say this, if the guy, cause I, I, I don't know what kind of research he did and all that. I didn't write this book, but if the guy did all the research and he were to be able to prove that a lot of things did happen in the latter part of decades, right? Because I'm thinking, like you're saying, I'm thinking Martin Luther King, 1968, Apollo moon landing, 1969, you know? But that, no, um, no, this is what I'm saying. You, if you train your mind to look for significant events in the last two years of a decade, you will be able to do it. But if you train no, your mind, that. I'm but if you train your mind to look for significant events in the first two years of a decade, you could do that too. Like significant events happen a lot, you know, so no, I get it. And that's why I'm, I'm not saying you're wrong because I get that. What I'm saying is, I guess we got to go look it back and really see the type of research he did to see what were the results. Because well, no, no, no. Almost I'm, like a his, I'm not questioning that stuff that the things he is citing are a legit big deal. What I'm saying is that you could do the research and say, hey, yeah, stuff happens in the middle of the decade. Like it's crazy. Every every decade. No, something but crazy what happens I'm in the saying middle. is I don't I'd, I'd like to look at his research to see what it found, because you're right. Maybe it did find that stuff happens all through decades and it was cherry picked the information he said. What I'm what I'm getting to, though, is if that if his research was accurate and it were to show that more things happen in societies towards the end of the decades, then I would, I would kind of come back and say that must, my first question would be, what is it about the human mind? Because I don't think it's something that has to do it's, with- Yeah, there's a psychological, yeah. No, I see. It's more like, is it just that once we put time into decades for ourselves as humans, yeah. do we kind of get sick of something after a or while? Or do we feel, we, well, we see the decade as the end of a transition and so- Correct, yeah, that's what I'm that. saying. I mean, I can see that, but here's the thing. I mean, and maybe because I'm a wordsmith in some ways, I, I parse this out. He didn't say that things only happen at the end of the decade. So he's not being misleading, even if 
There's stuff that happened in the middle of every decade, too, or at the beginning of every decade. He didn't say that stuff doesn't have or things only happen at the end. He was just pointing out. He was saying, hey, have you ever noticed that crazy things happen at the end of the decade? And then pointed out things that, that happened at the end of a decade. Yeah. So it's not it's not like deceptive, but it was just like, well, hey, man, like you probably could do that same exercise and say that significant things happen in the middle of every decade, you know, and, and, and go through it like that. Well, that's right. It's interesting because I think somebody out there listening, if you got the time, we would, we'd appreciate you doing that <laughs> exercise. Giving people I, work, I get the man. feeling he didn't do it as as thoroughly as, as we're talking here. But why but would he, though? Could, like his point, his, that wouldn't serve his point, you know, to make his point. But either way, I, that, I'm just thinking like like if you could load up that Watson computer with like every history book, you know, and just say, OK. Give me a graph now that plots the points of when stuff happens. I mean, you're right. Those points could be just spread out evenly and just it's us that are thinking that things happen a certain time. But if I saw the points plotted all towards the last couple of years of a decade, that's where I'd say, like, like you just said, maybe that says something about the way our minds are set up, that once we get kind of close to what we feel is a transition, it's kind of subconsciously we decide to kind of throw, you know, upheave everything. In, in, a, in a collective sense. Yeah. But, uh, Not everything, but you know. No, I mean, no, definitely, just definitely. But I wanted, I wanted to get your thoughts, you know, on his take on the economic system. You know, he had some very strong thoughts on outsourcing. Um, he had some very strong thoughts on on wage wages um, and, and, and things like that. I want to mention one thing in particular that he said, you know, that the, the outpacing of productivity, productivity outpacing wages leads to and requires compulsive borrowing, ongoing and endless borrowing, because wages equals demand, productivity equals supply. And if, if your supply constantly outpaces your demand, then you got to borrow in order to make that up. That was one very interesting thing. And then outsourcing, how that relates into that. So, but, you know, were there anything that really stood out to you? Was there anything as, as far as his, because he was very critical of, of economic policy? Yeah, there's a few things that stood out, um, but, but it made me think too, because again, going back to just people, right? He's a human being that wrote a mm -hmm. book. So he obviously has his own biases and the way his mind works. And I'm sure that he's made every effort to try and root his own stuff out. But he reminds me of a very left brain type of um, um, uh, intellectual in terms of how he's thinking about this, because I also have some of his older books. Like he has a book from 1994 called the myth of free trade. Yeah. Now that is, I understood his point in that book, but it's almost like it took, you know, 20, 25 years for the American population to wake up and realize they'd been kind of duped. Like but have you, they like even, have they even woke up and, and I don't think they realize it yet. I, I don't know. I mean, I would say this, it, it, it depends who they want to blame. Let's just leave it at that. But hey, man, um, we, we know the American public can always be convinced to blame brown people. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Whatever the problem topic. is. <laughs> you know, there, there are a lot of people that say, hey, it was brown people's fault. But go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. No, of course. And um, and um, but yeah, everybody except the sources of the pain. But um, so what I thought of when I read about a lot of his more Speaking to economics was kind of that. It goes back to what we said just earlier a few minutes ago, which is in 2006, he called the certain things like the Great Recession and all that. But like you said, he made some calls that didn't come to pass, like a Great Depression happening after that, because he was using his left brain only analytics as a pure economist, almost like a mathematician. Like if I put this equation here, it has to spit out this way. So if we're going to have a great collapse caused by this, let's say subprime mortgages, housing, finance, 
then the net result will be a Great Depression because the last depression we had was a result of that. Yeah. Credit. What he did, in fact, in was the kind of human ability to mess up plans, right? And, and, and equations, which was quantitative easing, 800 billion in 08, followed by a $1.2 trillion stimulus in 2009. Well, Tunde, you're using big words, man. All it is is just more borrowing. It's just right. so borrow what, what more he, money. What I think, no, but what I think, and fair to him, right? Like, I think at the time he wrote this book, we had a, it's think about like you're saying in 2006. In 2000, we had a $200 billion budget surplus and maybe a $1 trillion uh, uh, fiscal deficit. Debt? By the time Bush left office... Hold on, hold on. The budget surplus, like, are you saying debt or deficit? Now, the deficit is annual. The debt is the total cumulative that has been accumulated thus far. Correct. So, so the, the, but the, the, so yeah, that's the budget surplus. We were ahead yeah, of There the was no deficit. Point. Now, that's a cat. Yeah. There's an asterisk. There was no there. deficit There's at all. an asterisk Correct. there, though. That was including the money they were stealing from the Social Security Trust Fund, but we don't have to get into well, that. Well, yeah, yeah. let's not get into those <laughs> weeds. I'm just saying that the, the government actually took in more money that it spent by the year 2000. With that asterisk, but yes. However you want to look yeah, at yeah. that, taking it. And then, and then our, our actual true deficit, like the amount of money that we borrowed, that we owe a balance debt. on was really Yeah, the debt. Then, then by the time Bush left office in 08, we were at a $4 trillion debt, like yeah, money debt. that we owe. Uh-huh. We had a $1.4 trillion deficit, but in fairness to Bush, most of that was right at the end during the crisis. So let's say prior to that, we might have been running a $400 billion deficit. Yeah. So I would say by 2006, when Bacha wrote this book, maybe we were at a, um, maybe we were at, let's say, a $3 trillion deficit. I just don't think at the time someone like Batra could have fathomed that we'd have been printing in the trillions and that we'd go to a $20 trillion. I agree. Yeah, that's that. what I think that, like, he just... I just, yeah. I just think that's what I, that's what I think, like, that's why we're not perfect as humans, right? He's a great mathematician, economist. He could figure out a lot of stuff, but what he couldn't foresee was just how humans would then create a new reality. Well, I mean, we'll just... Say, oh, well, we're just gonna, we're just gonna print more money and... It's well, yeah, I mean, that, that's the, what he couldn't see is that they would just borrow more money, borrow the way out of the problem. Now, and he raises the issue of the debt being a, no ongoing debt being a, a concern and so forth. And, um, you know, I, so I appreciate that in terms of one thing that stood out to me that he was talking about is how easily and how pervasively moneyed interests buy intellectual argument, meaning whatever they want the argument to be, whatever you want to justify the human mind is innovative enough to figure out ways to justify it, particularly when things are very complex. And so with the economic stuff, like he cites uh, research by Nobel laureates saying that outsourcing of jobs will lower real wages. And that's wages, adju- inflation adjustment, adjusted. And real wages haven't gone up in this country since the 80s. Um, so people are earning less money relative to inflation now than they did 40 years ago. Um, and it, it, it goes back even further than that. But um, and so with that, this was all predicted. But now that it's happening, every intellectual that you find, for the most part, tells you that it's all these other reasons. It's automation. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's lack of, you know, or it's just that's how the economy has to be in an international economy. Um, but nobody says, even though it's been predicted and it came true, just that, you know, the fact that if you do um, that type of outsourcing, you will lower real wage, real wages. Um, the outsourcing aspect, the um, the free trade. This is something I've read actually in numerous sources talking about free trade is a great thing and it's good for the economy. 
when it's done with uh, with with com- with countries that have similar wage structures where their people have a civil standard of living is yours. But if you do free trade with countries that have much lower wages, much lower um, of, of standards of living, then you submarine your own workers. Well, what, what did we see happen here when we did it? So just the rational thought, because so many uh, people, people still sell trickle down economics in, 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 very well-respected places. And it's like, man, that stuff's been proven not to work like three or four times. But if you pay people enough money, people, smart people will get up and make those arguments and, and actually convince themselves that that's what's going on. And, and that part, well, that part to me was just mind, it's just mind boggling. It's almost like we'll never get out of our own way. And this is where you can look at cycles and say, Hey, yeah, anytime, you know, you need an argument, you know, you just hire the best, the smartest guy that's willing to take your money and he'll make the argument for you. Yeah, but I mean, I think, look, that's partly why you hear me joke sometimes about not having faith in humanity <laughs> long term because because of things like what you're saying, right? And I think it's deeper than what we're even just talking about here and like this book and economics and all that. I, th- I think, look, these, these were the things that were used to justify slavery in America, for example, yeah. right? That, that, that smart people were able to say, well, blacks just don't feel pain the same way. Um, they're not as smart. Um, it's the Bible says that slavery is okay. You know, there was always a justification of why it's okay until it wasn't okay. And now no one, no one today in 2019, I mean, I'm sure there's one person out there that does, but most people out there don't think that those arguments hold water today. But 200 years ago, a majority of people did think they held water. So it is, well, you're right. Well, here's the thing and, though, this is actually, my point's a little more, I guess, uh, sinister than that it's not that the arguments themselves are more or more more or less meritorious it's that the intellectuals aren't out there selling those arguments like they were no, I years agree, ago because if the intellectuals are, i right. think people, people would believe it those, if, if well hold on let me people, make the point if people yeah. i think if people were still selling the idea that blacks don't experience pain uh the way whites do and so therefore it's okay to do this to them or that to them I think you still get 40, 50% of people that will believe it. And so it's just that people aren't out there actively selling that stuff. Now there's stuff that people are actively selling now that, that thoughtful people know isn't true, but they'll sell it for a dollar and a lot of people will buy it. And so that part to me is just like that, that I don't see how you escape that, you know, like, because we have, no, you don't. And that's what I'm saying about not having faith long-term because it's, it's about integrity, right? I mean, there's just enough people out there that lack, I'd say this, because let me not say it that way, because sometimes it is a lack of integrity. I think there are people that do actively know that what they're peddling is false, but it's in their interest, right? Because it goes back to, let's say, the, the maybe the, the, the interest of those that are doing it. So you might have the intellectual class, the inquisitor class, and then the warrior class. Well, if the warrior class is... Uh, main understanding is is going to war and maintaining power that way. Then then they'll say things that that fit fit the frame to allow them to stay in po- power. No different than the inquisitors. So well, that's the point. An example and, of and that might have, be well. Let me let me make your let me help you, and I'll uh, jump back out. But yes, exactly. So if the the warriors are in power, then they have the intellectuals come up with arguments as to why. You know, their Correct. family should stay in power because it's ordained by God or their family should stay in power because that's what is the, you know, the, 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 the well, the ordained by God has been the biggest one throughout history, but, you know, for whatever other reason. Um, and so, but no, go ahead. 
Well, I'll give you two just modern examples that I can think of right off the top of my head. One would be, let's say, the Second World War. I would say Hitler was probably more of a warrior style, um, warrior class per personality, but he got the intellectuals to get the German people to believe that Jews deserved to be eradicated from the earth and that basically anyone who wasn't the Aryan was, was a lesser, right? So that's one example. Another more modern example, I would say, would be an issue like climate change. Yeah. That's yeah. where the acquisitor yeah. class, you know, the fossil fuel industry, the acquisitor class um, got, at, you know, let's say earlier in, in, in this conversation of, of, of climate change over the last 40 years, did have the scientific community, other intellectuals kind of carrying their water a bit. And I oh, think. Oh, not a little bit. I mean, that's, that's but, the whole thing yeah, is they find and, people that'll take their money to say. Now, Again, though, no, and the same with tobacco. Yeah, right? tobacco. Say it's 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 constant. It's ago. constant. But and the question yeah. always. Now, sometimes, as you said, it's sinister. But other times, remember, people people can convince themselves of anything. Even smart yeah, people can do that. Even too. you know, maybe even more so than yeah. the average person is that they can convince themselves of anything. And so they may there may be part of it where it's like, hey, they internalize this stuff and then truly believe it. The delusion, you know, the most powerful force in the universe, human delusion. Yeah. And, you know, so you end up with that. And, and so you always see it. I mean, and, and that's like, while on one hand, you know, you and I have discussed, you know, like, well, do people deserve, you know, people being the masses deserve what happens to them when they're so easily divided over things that aren't really that important um, while somebody else runs off with all the money? Um, do they deserve then for that person to run off with all the money? And it's hard to, to come to that for me because, you know, I, I'm one that, that thinks people should be given a fair chance and see things that are for real and let them make a choice. But History doesn't agree with me. Um, you know, yeah. the masses have always had the numbers, but yet they always end up on the short end of the stick because they're so easily turned against each other for this reason or that reason or whatever. And so that part of the cycle seems to be legit. Again, like the stimuli reaction part I'm with, you know, like it's just that yeah. you can then say what will happen after the reaction is the part that I think is undeterminable in advance. Um, you know, after the reaction, what happens next seems to be, and that, that's where it goes too far for me. Um, well, that's where I think, but that's why I also think it's never perfect because of what we said just about this example of Batra, you know, the, the books, you know, this book here written in 2006, he makes some, some predictions which played out to be accurate and he made some that didn't come to pass. And I think that, that comes down to just the inability to predict behavior of, of humans as individuals or groups because the numbers from the economic stuff he could predict pretty well. Yeah. It's just that a few changes in behavior at the top, meaning the Federal Reserve, the administration, all that, at least led to an avoidance of Yeah, I mean, depression. but it, it, you know, if like somebody gets assassinated, you know, and, and it changes the whole course of things in another way. Yeah. Like if things can the the stimuli and the reaction, you know, the stimuli and the reaction. Suppose happened. Robert F. Kennedy didn't get assassinated and became president in 1968. Or suppose his brother, John Kennedy, never got assassinated and had to run again in 64. Maybe he'd have lost to Goldwater. Yeah, who knows? Maybe he'd yeah. have won. Who knows? You know? So, and so that's the right. that's the part. And so that's the part where, you know, I always, you know, pull back when I see this, hey, here, you know, feel better because this stuff is all preordained, you know. Now he says well, now one thing I hope you I hope you're right that it's all predict or that, that it's predictive because he says we're on the verge of a golden age. Uh, my question to you. And who knows? And remember, that's what I'm saying. I'm not saying that I would read this and, and try and predict the future of it. I just think that we do as humans, as societies in 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 mass, do fall into certain cycles 
only because human beings uh, are pr predictable to some extent in terms of how we operate. I mean, well, so, so are bears. If you poke the bear, no, but you're <laughs> the right. bear will mow you. You're right. So you're right, right? They hibernate in the yeah. Eat salmon, you know the black bears eat the salmon or the brown. Well, bear no, I'm saying like if you, it's a well known. If you don't poke the bear, if you poke the bear, the bear is the laborers. If you poke them, too, you can yeah. steal from them. No, but I mean, steal look, and steal. Can, but if you go too far, they will overthrow what's happening. You know, like with the help of somebody else. But no, I want it. But in a, in a smaller example, without getting into this huge macro cycles, I mean, we all have patterns that that you know. Let's just say that if we look at advertising, you know, there's a reason why the advertising exists. <laughs> I, I always joke with people that say, there's a reason Hooters proves so much that restaurant mm -hmm. of facts. What, the humans are human the, beings? Sometimes yeah, people that, are that, human it's beings It's got the too. worst menu on the planet, but yet it's been around for 35 years. Because why? Because men like women that wear barely anything when they eat. Tunde, Tunde. It's very simple, man. In the wise and, word. And that's what I'm saying. That's a pattern, In the right? wise word. <laughs> that's just stimuli and reaction. That is, but that's a pattern of, of in men. the great words so, of Tunde Ogunlana. Sometimes people are human beings too. You can never forget that. <laughs> and um, and no, but so now, so he he sees us on the verge of a golden age. Poverty is going to be you know substantially eliminated. People will see through all of the nonsense that they're currently being distracted by. Um, so I don't buy you know, that. So you you don't see the rosy no, outcome. I think I think he's being utopian. Uh -huh. I think that's you know that's him being a human being. Sometimes he's a human too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you this. I'm actually I think that it's it's very possible. Um, the, the all of the tools that have come into being in the past twenty or thirty years, we've seen them as far as communication and organization and so forth. We've seen how they've been weaponized by interests that want to divide, interests that want to steal, interests that want to you know, basically that are selfish and self-serving. Um, we've yet to see, though, how they can be fully weaponized and utilized by people who, who want to raise all boats. And so I, I'm not saying that's going to happen, but there is a possibility that all of the stuff we see as far as how, how things have been used to divide and conquer can be used to unite and make things more equitable, you know? And, and, and that's not to say make things so that everybody has the same things. That means to make sure that people have the same opportunity and truly your own effort can determine your, your altitude, so to speak. You know, and, and so if you put in the work, then you can be rewarded. And if you don't, you don't, as opposed to now, where a lot of times people with the money just kind of rig the system so that if even if they do poorly, they still get a golden parachute or anything like that. Yeah. Um, and so that, that'll be the question. So I th I'm hopeful that that could happen. I, I think it's, again, it's going to depend on the people. It's going to depend on the people that step up and, and, and want to bring that change in, the people who you know, choose to support them or not. And, and, and there you have it, you know, and then we'll see, you know, you throw those chips down, you see where everything falls. You're, you're definitely a better man than me. <laughs> I don't see it. Um, no, and I, I'm serious because I think, you know, as you're talking, it makes me think about other technologies, right? Like um, gunpowder is invented by the Chinese, not as gunpowder, but first fireworks, fireworks yeah. for celebrations. And then somebody figures out, I can kill somebody with this too and make war a lot easier. Mm -hmm. Then you've got an example. Einstein invented the, um, he didn't invent the atomic bomb. The nuclear he, fission. He the ability yeah. up to split an atom yeah. for scientific reasons. Energy could be unlimited, all that. But then someone turned it into a bomb. And now we got nuclear bombs and weapons. Um, we could say the same thing with the printing press, right? It was, it was created 
for spreading information in a positive way. And people obviously write things that are negative. Well, but that's, so but no, those, those are that, all good examples though. Like they, but well, well, let me, let me, let me touch well, on those. Let me just finish right, the thought ahead, real ahead. quick. Cause I just, I just think that we're not going to be able to get out of this place that humanity's at until we actually evolve past it as humans. And I don't, we're not going to live for that. My point is it's going to take a long time because we still have the same fight or flight responses in our brain chemistry and our, and our, and our hormones that we had when we were on the Serengeti 20,000 years ago, getting chased by lions. So until, and that's the problem with social media now and everybody being stressed out and depressed because you're looking at your phone or your iPad, you're constantly in these, in you're secreting stress hormones and because somebody said something to you because some politician did this. So until we can evolve past that as, as kind of bio, biologically, I, I see humans constantly going to war, constantly no, fighting. No. And I just war is not more. I just common. hope we can survive because at what point in history? I mean, we've well, let me some, let me respond. Let me tell you. Huh? Let, here's the thing: printing press. Without the printing press, you don't have the American Revolution, for example. You don't usher in this era where you have constitutional republics and, and democracy, democratic elected officials. And so, but forth. didn't we have that in Rome and Greece? Not I mean, to the same that, degree that, as you that, have now. Those were those were still very exclusive in terms of who participated in the government. Um, though the, the printing press, it's not linear. You know, there's ups and downs, but it did open possibilities that weren't available prior to the when when information was lock and key and only certain people could do it. You don't go, you don't have computers without the printing press. You don't go into outer space without the printing press. You don't have airplanes unless you can transfer information like that. And so, uh, and then with nuclear warheads and so forth, that we don't know, we might be at war more without that. Like those types of things, people knowing that wars can become very serious, you know, very quickly may, may act as a restraint in terms of um, is war. So I think that to look at those things, it may, again, it may not be linear. After the bomb was invented, they used it twice, you know, but after that, you know, there's le- there may be less conflict. So, you know, like I, it, I but I, I know I jumped in. So, so what, what did you want to finish that point? No, that was it. I mean, I just, I think um, I understand exactly what you're saying. So I don't disagree at all. I think you're right. Like without the printing press, we don't have computers and, and astronauts because that stuff is, you know, human knowledge is kind of in a whole builds on itself. Right. Right? If people were copying text by hand, everybody doesn't have that. If you don't have schools where right. everybody can like, yeah. So you being able to replicate information and spread it like that, it was huge. But I guess what I'm saying is just that to get to a truly golden age of, of utopianism where there's no more poverty, for example, because remember poverty isn't just about someone being lazy and not working necessarily. It's, is less, a weapon, it's, it's right? much, it's, it's generally not that. That's what it's understood Correct. as, and that, but that, it's generally not. But that's yeah. my point. Poverty, but poverty is a weapon. Like we, we hear about things like the way that we, you know, governments use sanctions, yeah. right? To cripple economies to get, you know, oh, those man. governments. You really, you really going somewhere now, man. Well, you know, no, but there, well, hold right? on, let me tell you this. Yeah. There are many people who believe that, the economic system and the outcomes in, in terms of cre- creating poverty, lowering wages, that that's intentional, that people, the, the powers that be in after the New Deal and saw what happened in the 60s as far as people really trying to demand accountability from their government, um, that they saw that as people had too much idle time, too, people felt too entitled to participate in the governments, like that they should sit back and just let us run the government and stop questioning us on why we're going to war here or why we're spending money here. And so it was purposeful 
to, hey, let's let's make sure people make less money, people feel less secure. Now, Bacha talks about this. One of the defining characteristics of feudalism is the reliance on the feudal lords for your sustenance, that you shut up and do what people say when you can't eat without them giving you something. And that's basically what corporate is supposed to be now. You know, it is to say, hey, you, we, you won't be a slave, but you're going to shut up and dribble or whatever it's going to be when we want you to, because without us, you, you can't eat. And so there's, there's conscious debate on whether the rolling back of the New Deal was just about greed or whether it was really about power and that we have to get the people to shut up. They're just trying to participate in the government too much. We're supposed to be a democracy, but that's not really the way we're trying to run it. We're trying to run it where we just make the decision. So it's very interesting that you say that because, yeah, poverty is a weapon. Yeah, and, and I think it's a little bit of both. I, I Like, I'm the type, I don't think that there's some, you know, small group of people that just run everything and keep making all these decisions. I think it comes back to what you said about the intellectual class getting convinced. I think what happened is the New Deal worked and it, it actually worked so well that then people started pulling the bridge up behind them, right? Like saying, <laughs> oh, well, everybody's got it so good now. Why do we need to still have these benefits and these programs for people? And why do this? And, why? and so what happens, and then people that start making more money naturally say, well, why am I paying all these taxes? I work hard. You know, I don't need to support this and that. And then when you get... Well, but that still requires the co-option of the intellectual because then they're asking those questions. There is a reason, but you're not given that reason. All you're doing is giving the, like, the, 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 the CEO may have all the money, but you're told to look at the, the, the welfare queen and say, hey, that's the reason why you don't have any money. Correct. Like, well, well, that's been, but that goes back to when you brought up trickle-down economics. I mean, that's been the last 40 years of our economics in this country, right, is that... Um, that was sold, and it's, it goes, looking back in time, let's say 1980 was a good time because you've got the baby boom generation, the older ones were hitting their 40s. Yeah. So this largest generation in the United States, which enjoyed up to that point the largest economic boom in they the United States. They grew up States, in it, you know, yeah. Starting to make money, and they, to your point, the intellectuals could start convincing them that everything's okay, we can... We can kind of pulled the bridge up because everybody's okay now at work. And then it culminated with the civil rights and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, yeah. No, that's, no that's, that's, that's an excellent point in terms of how people receive that and then their reaction to it. But no, I mean, it, ultimately, you know, I would recommend the book. You know, I definitely think people should check it out. Um, you know, it's, it's good to, you know, to see things presented in a way uh, regardless of how much you want to believe it or, or, or whether you, you, you buy the entirety of it. It's presented, it's very, it's, it's thoughtful, I should say. It's very, it's very thoughtful and it, it appears to be well-researched and well-presented. So, I mean, I definitely think it's something people should read. And I enjoyed going, I, you know, like you, I had read it about a decade ago and then went back through it for this. And, you know, definitely, I'm glad we got a chance to talk about it. Yeah, no, this is great. And also, I know you asked me about the economic side real quick. I'll tell the audience, um, for those that are looking to learn more about economics and things like that, uh, he, he references some good things that can help those that are interested learn. So it is a, it is a good book on many levels. Yeah, yeah but that's, uh, once again, it's, it's the new golden age, the coming revolution against political corruption and economic chaos, and it's by Ravi Batra. And so, yeah, thanks for joining us today on Call It Like I See It. You know, we look to do a book a month, uh, so we'll have something in December for, you know, another book, we'll, which we'll, I guess we'll announce, and people want to be able to, to look at that in advance before the show comes, then, you know, we'll have that. Um, but that'll be in the coming weeks so but yeah definitely appreciate you joining us you know rate us like us review us and tell your friends about us and so until next time i'm james keys i'm tune thanks for joining us